0: Today is Friday, April 12, 2019. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction, and I'd like to welcome everyone on today's call. We're excited to have Dr. Richard Fry to talk with us about primary mitochondrial disease and secondary mitochondrial dysfunction, the importance of distinction for diagnosis and treatment. The slides for today's calls are up and available on the MitoAction website at www.mitoaction.org slash FRYE 41219. On the right side of the page, you'll see the link View Slides, and you'll just click that button and you can follow along with the presentation today. Today's call is being recorded, and we encourage you to visit our website to listen to the information as well as sharing today's great information with your family, caregivers, your medical team, or anyone you think will benefit from the call. To access the recording, you can visit our website at www.mitoaction.org, and the slides will be available within 24 hours of today's call. At the end of the presentation, we'll have a Q&A session, so please feel free to email all of your questions to us at info at mitoaction.org, and we'll ask those questions for you at the end of Dr. Fry. So let's get started. I'm honored to be here with you today to bring what we hope will be great information that will benefit each of you on your journey with mitochondrial disease. Dr. Richard Fry is a pediatric neurologist and chief of the Division of neural developmental Disorders at Phoenix Children's Hospital. He is the Director of Autism Program at the Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, as well as a Professor of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. Dr. Fry received his MD-PhD from Georgetown University in 1998. He completed a residency in Pediatrics at the University of Miami, a residency in Child Neurology and Fellowship in Behavioral Neurology, and Learning Disabilities at Harvard University's Children's Hospital, Boston, and completed a fellowship in psychology at Boston University. Dr. Fry holds board certifications in pediatrics and in neurology with special competence in child neurology. He is a national leader in autism research and has authored over 100 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters and serves on several editorial boards of scientific and medical journals. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Fry.
1: Thanks so much uh, for that introduction. Can you hear me okay?
0: Yes, we can hear you just great.
1: Excellent. Yeah, thanks for, um, for inviting me today uh, to talk about um, uh, mitochondrial disorders, particularly secondary mitochondrial um, dysfunction. Um, and so uh, I've kind of narrowed my talk because it's just such a, a big field that you can talk uh, forever um, uh, to one of my passions and that is you know secondary mitochondrial dysfunction in neurodevelopmental disorders and really some of I think there's a good example of, of these secondary mitochondrial uh, disorders or at least mitochondrial dysfunction um, and so uh, I'm going to concentrate on that today so it's okay I, I can get going
0: yes yeah, the floor uh, is yours uh,
1: okay <laughs> So uh, so we can go on to uh, the, the uh, second slide. So I'll just um, say as we go on, you know, is just this uh, disclaimer. I'll talk about uh, certain types of treatments um, at the, towards the end. And, and, of course, these are not, you know, FDA-approved treatments. Any type of treatments uh, that I talk about should not uh, be done without the consultation of a medical professional. Or as I like to say, don't do this at home. So uh so third slide we, is
0: uh
1: it, we uh, look at the mitochondria and I think uh this group is probably familiar with the mitochondria um but of course the mitochondria is uh just a very important part of the cell you know it's uh, it's an organelle that is it's a it's a small organ within the cell um uh, literally translated and every cell in our body almost every cell in our body has anywhere uh, from hundreds to tens of thousands of mitochondria, and the mitochondria is very unique and very important to the cell. And I think that's why uh, we hear so much about it, and and we have uh, this group of mitochondrial diseases and dysfunction. Um, mitochondria itself has its its own uh, genome, um, uh, so it's a somewhat separate um, but connected to the to the uh, to the to the chromosomes and the genes. Of course, more of the genes in the in the nucleus uh, uh, control the mitochondria then there are mitochondrial genes but of course this it's very important uh, the mitochondrial genes themselves the mitochondria has to have its own machinery um, to do many different things um, and many different pathways um, of the cell uh, run through it and that's why it's really so important uh, we can go on to the fourth slide which really um, you know, just emphasizes mitochondrial disease. And mitochondrial disease is something that really, I think, um, when we look at the scope of medicine, um, it really has uh, just been really uh, discovered if you think about it. Really, the first papers on, on uh, clear mitochondrial disease were only in 1988 by um, really greats in the field uh, right now. Um, but, um, but really, in the scope of medicine, that's really a blink in the eye. Um, and um, and so it tells us why we are just learning more and more about the mitochondria of course people think about the mitochondria as uh, a uh, part of the cell that creates all of the energy and so when we look for symptoms of mitochondrial disease um, we think of those systems in our body that uh, use up a lot of energy and that tends to be the nervous system the GI system and the immune system and and we see these over and over again as some of the areas of, uh, of the body that aren't working in individuals with mitochondrial disease um, but what's also important to realize is that the mitochondria is not just the powerhouse of the cell. it's not just there to make energy but it does um, other things and we'll have examples of that on the next slide so on slide five we uh, see some really important um, interactions of the mitochondria with other parts of the cell, particularly um, the endoplastic reticulum on the top, um, particularly for calcium regulation. And calcium is extremely important. Um, It uh, is important as a signaling molecule in the cell, especially in the nervous system. It's very important in nerves and and allowing them to release neurotransmitters, um, but it also has many other functions. And um, calcium regulation, in the cell is very complex, but the mitochondria is right in the center of of, of calcium regulation. So um, when you have abnormalities in calcium regulation or uh, you can can affect the mitochondria and stress it. Um, Likewise, when you have mitochondrial dysfunction, you can um, disturb the way your um, cell uses calcium. Um, uh, Slide six um, emphasizes the um, uh, interaction of the mitochondria, with the immune system. Something that we're learning more and more about and is uh, very, um, uh, you know, emerging, ongoing research about how the mitochondria are important in immune system function. Um, uh, For example, one of the things that was discovered is, if you see the uh, number six, is something called the inflammasome. That is, to initiate inflammation in the cell, it seems like, like you actually have to initiate the um, uh, that, that that response has to be initiated in concert with the mitochondria so if the mitochondria isn't working inflammation um, will uh, sometimes not occur or, or will become dysfunctional uh, we're finding that um, in the immune system there's uh, many uh, different types of cells we know but we know that the mitochondria is pretty important for uh, some of the key cells in the immune system particularly um, T cells which is number eight both activated and memory t-cells um and um and uh and also down in number two uh, we see metabolism in t-cells and the important thing here that's really uh, starting to come to light is that the mitochondria tends to be very important in regulator t-cells that is t-cells that that tamp down the immune system when um, it shouldn't be uh, working and regulating its uh, its uh, its response um, to uh, to um, uh, to different triggers of inflammation. So without the mitochondria, we think that some of these regulating um, uh, T cells of the immune system aren't working correctly. Um, it's also very important for um, what we call memory T cells, which is number nine, and um, and also for clearance of infections. So. We're learning how the mitochondria itself um, is very important and, and interacts with the immune system. Uh, the next slide, there's something um, called the urea cycle. The urea cycle, which you can see over on the right-hand side, is a very important metabolic pathway that gets rid of um, uh, proteins in our body when they have to be disposed of. Um, and if we can't eliminate these in um, uh, in, in in um, an efficient way, then it will actually interfere with metabolism. Well, um, that cycle itself is actually part of the, uh, partly inside the mitochondria. So when the mitochondria doesn't work, you can actually have problems with protein metabolism. Lastly, on slide eight um, is uh, something that's uh, that we know is very um, tightly integrated with the mitochondria, and that is oxidative stress. Oxidative stress um, occurs when um, some of the uh, oxygen radicals um, um, in our um, body become too high and can cause damage. Um, We know that the mitochondria itself is actually one of the um, sources, the major sources of oxidative stress because of the, um, or creating oxygen radicals because of the way uh, that it works. Um, But because of that, it also has to have different pathways to control oxidative stress and so it's very intimately involved in um, uh, regulating oxidative stress and if these pathways uh, um, are uh, not uh, um, are, 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 um, are dysfunctional, it can cause mitochondrial dysfunction. Likewise, if the mitochondria isn't working very well, um, um, it can cause Abnormal levels of oxidative stress which can be harmful to the body and hard to control Um, and uh, and, uh, Finally on on, uh, slide nine uh, we see uh, the really the array of different um, Disorders that we've really discovered that there may be some involvement of the mitochondria But many of these how the mitochondria is actually involved um, really remains uh, an open question um, and so um, many neurodevelopmental diseases, we see that the mitochondria does not seem to be uh, working correctly. So in learning disabilities, cerebral palsy, uh, language delay, um, autism, we see that, uh, that the mitochondria does not seem to be working correctly for some reason. But we see this in a whole host of um, other, even more common diseases, you know, including diabetes, epilepsy, psychiatric diseases, And GI diseases, uh, multiple sclerosis, um, and sometimes unexplained disorders, unexplained liver failure, unexplained kidney disease, unexplained heart failure, unexplained blindness. So it really seems like mitochondria is very much involved in many of these diseases, and we're just beginning to learn um, how um, it may be. So one of the real... Uh, mysteries and one of the things I'll talk about today is this and this is slide 10 um, is this uh, differentiation between primary mitochondrial disease versus uh, secondary mitochondrial dysfunction and so um, since discovery of really mitochondrial disease uh, we have have to come up with a very uh, particular and very uh, uh, very narrow criteria of diagnosing these diseases. And so over the years, um, uh, particularly because some of the first mitochondrial diseases were described with mutations, um, in the mitochondrial genome, uh, one of the criteria we use is that, uh, that there has to be a mutation in, in, um, that is known to cause mitochondrial disease. And, um, and some of the other criteria we think about, um, and, and this is very important is to, uh, Um, To think that, well, mitochondrial disease is uh, centered around the mitochondria not working very well. That is that if we measure its function, its function is very, very, very low. Um, And so these are the two of the major criteria that help us diagnose um, classic mitochondrial disease, what we call primary mitochondrial disease. And then there's many of the mitochondrial diseases that we've named and uh, we know about. However, what we find in many of the disorders that you know, I mentioned in the previous slide is that um, they don't fall into this very narrow criteria of primary mitochondrial disease. Um, they, we find out that the mitochondria isn't working well for some reason, you know, either by measuring biomarkers, um, blood tests that tell us that uh, the mitochondria seems to uh, have some trouble working, or uh, measuring um, how the mitochondria is working itself, and we find that it's not working um, as it should, although it may not fall into this very mi- uh, narrow, mitochond- uh, narrow um, criteria for diagnosing mitochondrial disease. And, and so we have this whole category of, of something that's emerging called mitochondrial dysfunction, and we don't always know why it is. We think that probably it's secondary to um, some other problem um, in the uh, in the cell or in the body that's causing the mitochondria not to, to work correctly, and so it's an area of controversy because um, if we don't have a very clear diagnosis of why this is happening to the mitochondria, we don't always know uh, what to do about it. And this is a, a, a here is a paper and an algorithm that uh, uh, that uh, we published in um, a paper um, uh, a couple of years ago with Dr. Nazoff and. And Dr. Kaler where we talked about this that is that uh, that you can diagnose, you know, first you can diagnose primary mitochondrial disease or PMD and then um, you can say, okay, you know, we know what that treatment is but many of the times we uh, find that uh, that we don't have a clear answer. Uh, So what about what do we uh, do about that? You know, well, um, the uh, the Uh, notion is that we have to investigate we have to investigate not only for um, some uh, maybe unusual mitochondrial diseases maybe they um, or or, or, um, genes that uh, may uh, uh, not be obvious but we also have to look for other secondary causes of, of, of mitochondrial dysfunction but one of the things that's important is to realize that that's not a reason to stop. That's not a reason not to treat the mitochondria. Because if the mitochondria isn't working uh, well, we need to really address it because it's actually part of the disease process. And unless you address that, you uh, probably will not be able to um, completely uh, treat the disease. So um, what I'd like to do is talk about um, some of the um, examples of what we see in mitochondrial Uh, where we see mitochondrial dysfunction some of um, they're in many ways somewhat open questions but I I think that um, uh, we uh, we're leading to finding out more and more about the mitochondria how it may not be working in certain diseases and what we can do about it so uh, slide 11 we'll talk about mitochondrial dysfunction um, in autism Um, so slide 12 and uh, this is uh, one of the, the, the times that uh, that we realized that there's something beyond uh, mitochondrial disease. And uh, when uh, back in 2010 or so, myself and a colleague, Dr. rosenroll uh, decided to uh, look at the literature to see what uh, there was whether there was evidence of mitochondrial disease um, in autism, um, because we knew that there was literature that was emerging that it did seem like there was. And so we did something called a meta-analysis um, and a systematic review where we take every single paper that's been published um, on uh, mitochondrial dysfunction and autism and review it, put it together, and ask, well, what is the data show? And what we found was something very interesting, that there was uh, several studies that looked at really classic mitochondrial disease and autism. And if you looked at the overall prevalence that in autism, it seemed like 5% of the children with autism could be diagnosed with mitochondrial disease, which is a gigantic number um, for a 5% prevalence of mitochondrial disease anywhere. Um, But what was very striking is when we looked at, um, uh, when we looked at biomarkers of mitochondrial dysfunction, that is saying that the mitochondria wasn't working, when we looked at studies that looked at elevated lactate or pyruvate or lactate to pyruvate ratio, um, elevated alanine and such, we found that the percentages were much higher, that uh, for elevated lactate there were six studies and overall they found that 30 percent of uh, kiddos with autism had elevated lactate, suggesting that the mitochondria was not working, that elevated pyruvate received in 14 percent. Elevated lactate to pyruvate ratio um, in 30 percent. So there was a real discrepancy in those that could be diagnosed with classic mitochondrial disease and that had markers of the mitochondria not working. So next slide, uh, slide uh, 13, um, there's even studies that suggest that mitochondrial dysfunction is even more prevalent um, in uh, in autism and in this paper that was published in JAMA, which is one of the best medical journals um, out of um, UC Davis, the Mind Institute, they looked at immune cells in children with autism, um, and they found that 80 percent, that is eight out of the ten children with autism, when they looked um, at their immune cells, they found that eight out of ten children had mitochondrial dysfunction um, when they look at their immune cells. So 80 percent, which is a gigantic number. Um, uh, but again, they didn't find any uh, real um, uh, abnormalities um, in, uh, in, in, in the, uh, the genome um, to uh, suggest that the majority of these children had some type of genetic abnormality that would suggest primary mitochondrial disease. Um, now, this is slide 14. One of the uh, one of the other things that was uh, very interesting is that um, in our meta-analysis, going back to our meta-analysis of all the the uh, um, the um, literature on autism, we also looked at every child that was diagnosed with classic mitochondrial disease um, and autism and asked about their characteristics um, as compared uh, to uh, to other children. But one of the things that Um, And I'm not going to go over all the details, but I'll I'll point one thing out that was very striking. And that was in all of the reports of kiddos with mitochondrial disease and autism, only 23% of them was there reported any type of DNA abnormality, genetic abnormality that could account or their mitochondrial disease, suggesting that something else might have been going on, that either is complex genetics, epigenetics, or some type of environmental influences that was uh, causing the mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, so slide 15 is one of the first um, uh, studies that made us question, you know, how we saw the mitochondria in autism. And this was a really um, interesting uh, paper um out of um, uh, UCSD, where it was a just a, it was a case study of um, siblings of a girl um, that had uh, uh, Lee syndrome um, due to uh, a particular mutation in the um, in, in the mitochondrial DNA. And when they looked at heteroplasmy, that is, uh, how what was the mutation load um, in her? she seemed to have about an 80% uh, mutation load. That is about 80% of her mitochondria had this uh, mutation. And they found out that she had a very classic uh, presentation of mitochondrial disease, with um, both complex four and complex five not working very well. And she had a classic presentation of a mitochondrial disease. But her brother had autism. And when they looked at his mitochondria, He had a little bit of a lower uh, mutation load 60 percent um so six out of ten mitochondria but instead of his um instead of the enzymes in his mitochondria working at a very low level they were actually working at a very high level they were elevated in their function so the mitochondria were not working um, as they should but they were working not as they should in a different way instead of having a very um, low activity, they had an extremely high activity uh, for some reason. Um, And this may just uh, be, you know, you may just think, well, this is just a a one case, but then we look at other cases. And when um, we started looking at uh, kiddos with potential mitochondrial disease, uh, when I first um, started Uh, working with kids with autism and doing muscle biopsies we actually found some of them that instead of having very low um, activation uh, or uh, low activity of their mitochondria that some of them had extremely high activity and this is a paper that I published with Dr. Navio where uh, we've actually found that in in a case series of kiddos that actually had complex four function in the mitochondria that was 200% of normal or double that, uh, that we see, um, um, that should be. Um, And it ends up, it's not just us, uh, that that others have um, looked at um, um, other kids with autism, and in this study, they actually looked at brain tissue, and they found the uh, similar results, that in their study, that complex four was actually higher in the brain tissue, um, uh, the kids with autism, um, than uh, the controls. Um, we've done other studies where we've looked at, uh, and so I'm on slide 18 now. I'm sorry, so the brain tissue is slide 17. I'm on slide 18 now, uh, where we uh, measured uh, mitochondrial um, complex activity in um, kiddos with autism using the buccal swab technique. Um, and uh, what we found is that um, when we measure complex 1 and complex 4 activity, that some have very low activity, but also some have very high activity. And you can see that as these red dots in the graphs under complex one and complex uh, four. Um, so uh, we, uh, we concluded that there's an increase in variation in mitochondrial um, activity. And if we go to slide 19, um, we can see that we actually correlated this with um, functional abilities as measured by the Vineland Adaptive Behavior Scale. And we found that either very low uh, mitochondrial function or very high mitochondrial function, both correlated with um, reduced uh, function. Um, So slide 20, we have this uh, this, uh, kind of idea that, uh, that kids with autism, you know, do overlap with what we call definite probable or possible mitochondrial disease, but that there's this other kind of non-classic mitochondrial dysfunction that uh, may overlap with, with autism spectrum disorder, um, which, uh, uh, which is yet to be defined in some ways. To look at this in more detail, slide 21, we used uh, something called the the uh, Seahorse Ana- analyzer in our um, in our lab to actually measure mitochondrial uh, function. And, and slide 21 is just a a, um, a picture of the Seahorse um, analyzer. Slide 22 is a, is a slide of, of some of the measures we get out of this. Something uh, called basal respiration, ATP-linked respiration, proton leak respiration maximal respiratory capacity, and something very important called reserve capacity. Reserve capacity um, is very important, we think, because it tells us how much extra the mitochondria has, how much extra reserve it has, if um, it is stressed by any type of you know, outside stressor. And we know when reserve capacity goes to zero, that the mitochondria um, becomes sick and the cell becomes sick. So it's an index of really mitochondrial health. So some of the first experiments we did um, on the mitochondria and autism, which is slide 23, um, is we took um, uh, cell lines um, from, uh, from kiddos with autism from, um, from the NIH biorepository, um, and we, contra- we compared them to control cell lines. Um, and of course, the, uh, the idea as well, there's an increased number of kids with mitochondrial disease uh, that have autism, probably what we'd find was that uh, that the mitochondria wasn't working as well that it would have a much lower respiratory rate on on all these parameters of mitochondrial respiration but instead we found the opposite we actually found that uh, individuals with autism had slightly high respiratory rates that is atp-linked respiration um, uh, maximal respiration reserve capacity at baseline was uh, much higher And you see that in this graph where um, you see uh, DMNQ, uh, where you see DMNQ zero all the way out to the left of each of the graphs. Then what we did is we said, well, um, are these cells more vulnerable to um, oxidative insults? And in order to do that, what we did is we used something called DMNQ to increase oxidative stress in the cell. And then we could systematically see what would happen. Um, to the cells and what we found is that as you look from uh, left to right in the graph that you can see that the red lines there which represent um, the kids with autism um, uh, start out much higher but as you go to the right they come down much lower and in fact for reserve capacity again which is this very important index of mitochondrial health they actually go below the controls so we uh, concluded that well they seem to be somewhat um, um, more sensitive to oxidative insults. But again, you know, these look uh, from these graphs as very small changes. So what we did, slide 24, is we, we said, well, the, these, uh, these may be in clusters. That is that there may be um, some kids that have normal mitochondrial function and some kids that have this abnormal mitochondrial function. And we use something called cluster analysis to actually uh, pull these two um, out and we found that um, that there were some that had this abnormal mitochondrial function of course which we called ADAs and some which that had more normal mitochondrial function which we called ADNs and then when you pull those out separately and compare them to controls which you can see on slide 25 uh, you can see that uh, that the middle um, uh, the middle uh, row uh, on slide 25 is a comparison of these ADAs these abnormally um, functioning mitochondria versus controls that this effect is quite striking and that um, that these cells seem to have twice the respiratory rates um, of controls and if you look all the way over to um, uh, the right um, in the middle you can see that reserve capacity goes from twice what it should be at DMNQ zero to um, when we increase DMNQ and, and stress the cells to way below or significantly below um, what the, uh, the controls um, would have as far as uh, reserve capacity, suggesting that they're more sensitive to oxidative insults. Um, next slide on, on 26, we found that um, that there was actually changes in the regulatory mechanism of oxidative stress. Um, that is a protein called UCP2 um, was upregulated um, in these cells because they needed to regulate um, uh, higher levels of oxidative stress. Um, and then um, the, uh, one, uh, another experiment we did, which is slide 27, is where we really looked at sibling controls. So to ask, well, is this just something to do with their genetic background and maybe epiphenomenon, or does this really distinguish um, kids with autism from their typically developing siblings? And what we found is that that's exactly the case, that the thing that distinguished um, kiddos with autism from their typically developing siblings was this abnormal uh, mitochondrial uh, signature. So next slide 28, uh, we asked, well, are there some type of what's really causing this? You know, what could be some of the molecular regulatory mechanisms? Um, and so one of the approaches we took, uh, slide 29, is we looked at something called microRNAs, which are regulatory RNAs within the cell. These these are these are, um, these are uh, genetic uh, essentially genetic molecules that regulate um, how other genes work. Um, and we asked for their particular microRNAs that uh, that um, differentiated um, ki- uh, cells from kids with autism from their typically developing siblings and from typically developing non-related controls. And we found that that indeed there were and and the ones that uh, one. Of the, Ones that we found was this class of uh, microRNA 181s, um, um, and then we asked, well, if you uh, look at the cells that have mitochondrial dysfunction versus those that don't have mitochondrial dysfunction, do these microRNAs, do some of them actually regulate, you know, that change? And we did find that actually one of these microRNAs, microRNA 181b, not only differentiated um, the uh, the cells with autism from those from uh, those who are typically developing but it actually regulated uh, mitochondrial uh, function also and you can see that in parentheses next uh, um, the MR um, uh, 181 is that uh, is that also the pathways that it regulates in the cell something called P10 and T cell function so immune cell function so it's very intimately involved with the immune system um, Next slide. One of the things that uh, we did in, in slide 30 is that we looked at uh, this uh, this pathway called p10. It's associated um, uh, molecular mechanisms, particularly something called mTOR, which is a master regulator of the cell. It's a master regulator of metabolism. Um, and this uh, this diagram is how um, some of these pathways are are very much interconnected. We know that, that uh, P10 is connected to mTOR and that actually regulates mitochondrial function through a number of, um, uh, of different mechanisms. And what we found was uh, that this, uh, this pathway mTOR was actually elevated in all of the cells um, of kids with autism. But those that had mitochondrial dysfunction were missing some key elements to help regulate and um, control mitochondrial function and those you can see in green. That is that the autistic, uh, the cell lines from children with autism that were normally functioning, which is highlighted in green, had elevation in CERT1, CERT3, PGC1 alpha, uh, pink 1 and such, which are very important um, uh, genes and regulatory mechanisms to control mitochondrial function and regulate mitochondrial quality. Um, and we hypothesized that something was happening with uh, the mTOR pathway where one arm of it called the S6K1 um, um, were inhibiting these, uh, these genes um, from working. And we know that using low doses of something called rapamycin could uh, downregulate regulate uh, this, uh, this, uh, this pathway um, and hopefully normalize mitochondrial function and and in slide 31, that's exactly what we found: is that when we uh, used uh, rapamycin at very low doses, we were able to normalize mitochondrial um, dysfunction in some of these uh, these um, uh, these uh, uh, cells that had this very these very high respiratory rates. Um, so um, so. Uh, what what other things uh, uh, we found and and, and how uh, you know secondary mitochondrial function can happen, but we have some other exciting work and this is slide 32 on uh, the effects of the environment on the mitochondria and autism. Um, slide 33. Uh, one of the things that uh, we hypothesized is that uh, uh, that some t- some of these cells that that seem to have this abnormal mitochondrial function may have had it uh, because they may have been exposed uh, to some type of adverse environment at some point. And and this is a theory of of how we uh, may find some of these diseases, that is, we have a a vulnerable genetic background and we have some type of trigger. So uh, what type of trigger can occur and and how would we prove that? Well, what we did, uh, slide 34, Um, is uh, that we simulated what an adverse um, environment would be like to these cells. So we use very low levels of DMNQ, that is to increase oxidative stress, uh, for long periods of time, 96 hours, um, to see if we can actually shift the mitochondrial function. And we found that um, not in controls, but those kids with autism, uh, over on on the right on, on slide 34, that actually were able to actually shift um, the mitochondrial respiration profile such that their reserve capacity at baseline would be elevated just like uh, the cells that uh, we um, uh, uh, that uh, we see um, that have abnormal mitochondrial function and that they're more vulnerable to oxidative stress when we um, when uh, we uh, stress them Uh, slide 35 we found that um, that actually these, these uh, cells that uh, have abnormal mitochondrial function actually um, may be adapted to handle uh, certain types of, um, uh, certain types of environmental stressors and environmental toxicants. And in this study, uh, uh, we uh, found that uh, a uh, environmental toxicant that's associated with autism called PCAH, um, actually the cells were more resilient to for some reason as if they had adapted and become more resilient um, to certain types of toxicants. One of the real exciting pieces of um, data we have, this is slide 36, um, is uh, data we collected from um, uh, approximately uh, 200, 250 kids or so um, across the United States uh, where we've actually measured their mitochondrial um, uh, function and, and I did this one uh, I was in Arkansas um, and in the bottom you can see the distribution, this is slide 36, you can see the distribution of, the, uh, of, of where the, the children came from. You can see they were all across the United States but um, uh, located in, in the southern region somewhat. But what we found, which was really exciting in slide 37, is that when we looked back at uh, their exposure to air pollution. Um, in utero, that is before birth, we actually found that their exposure to uh, levels of an important measure of air pollution called pm 25 during gestation correlated with how their mitochondria was working after birth in childhood, suggesting that an environmental exposure even before birth actually could program the mitochondria to uh, work um, um, in a different way um uh, next slide 38 another area that's very exciting we think is this um, effect of the uh, gut microbiome is another um, you know uh, uh, environmental influence that we don't think about all that much but we're starting to learn that the gut microbiome is is very much uh, different Um, it's associated with many diseases changes in it associated with many diseases um and uh, so it may be very important but what we're learning is that it actually can affect mitochondrial function and so slide 39 is this uh, idea of the human microbiome the human microbiome which you've probably heard about because it's been in the news or are the trillions of microbes that live um, in and on us uh, particularly in our gut uh slide 40 we know that uh, these bacteria, when they're in, their, in, in our gut, they influence the way our physiology works, particularly short chain, they make things called short chain fatty acids uh, that can uh, program um, our bodies and affect our bodies. Uh, slide 41, there's something called um, propionic acid, which is a short chain uh, fatty acid that's made from these bacteria. And it's actually been shown to actually affect not only gut uh, motility, and mitochondrial function, but it has neurodevelopmental consequences. And uh, slide 42, um, some of the studies from um, Dr. McFabe up in uh, Canada actually showed that if you inject this short-chain fatty acid into um, adult animals, they will actually exhibit um, autistic-type behavior, uh, where they become antisocial um, and they have repetitive movements. So it's a very intriguing molecule that's made um, from the gut uh, microbiome. But one of the really interesting things, slide 34, I'm sorry, slide 43, slide 43 is that um, Dr. McFabe, when he was actually studying these animals, found out that there was abnormalities in fatty acid metabolism that were very unusual. That is that there was elevations in both short and long chain fatty acids but not medium chain fatty acids. And this pattern isn't really a known um, uh, disorder of fatty acid metabolism. But at the same time, we actually found that children with autism um, had a similar pattern of elevations of of, uh, fatty acids when they were screened for fatty acid um, oxidation disorders. So slide 44. Uh, we actually looked at the children that had come through our clinic, and we found out that 17% of them that were screened actually consistently, that, that is more than twice, um, had this pattern of abnormal um, fatty acids. Uh, so slide 45, uh, then we looked at it and said, well, what would happen if you had uh, too much um, uh, propionic acid? Um, and this is a diagram of something called the citric acid cycle and we can see what would happen is if you had too much propionic acid, you would actually short circle the first short circuit the first part of the citric acid um, uh, cycle. Um, and so what would that do? so slide forty six we can see that the first part of the uh, citric acid cycle produces something called NADH, which um, gives fuel or um, at least donates electrons to um, to uh, to complex one for complex one to function. So when we actually looked at these kids that had this pattern um, of uh, fatty acid oxidation disorders, what did we find? We actually found that some of them that had gone, undergone uh, muscle biopsy, that actually uh, complex one was exactly the exact thing that was depressed, suggesting that uh, not only was Uh, There are most likely some abnormality in this uh, pathway uh, potentially uh, uh, involving propionic acid but that it uh, had the um, uh, the uh, similar types of patterns or effects on on their mitochondria uh, throughout their body we have also done studies where we've gone back to the cell lines and we've uh, looked at the effect of propionic acid um, on um, on uh, cell lines on the mitochondria, we found that uh, low levels, so uh, slide 48, low levels of propionic acid um, uh, could, you know, improve or, or be used as a fuel uh, for a mitochondrial function. Uh, slide 49, um, we found that uh, that uh, particularly um, some of the uh, cells from kids with autism uh, seem to preferentially. Use propionic acid um, as a fuel. This is slide 49. Um, but uh, slide uh, 50, when we um, actually stressed uh, these cells with uh, uh, with um, with high levels of oxidative stress, we put them under physiological stress. We actually found that propionic acid had the opposite effect and actually made the mitochondria uh, uh, function uh, much worse than it would have if it was not there. So we find this is very context dependent. Uh, that is that propionic acid could be used as a fuel, but if the mitochondria are under stress for some reason, it actually can make things uh, worse. Uh, slide 51, we recently um, published a paper looking at the effect of butyrate, which is another very important short chain fatty acid um, on mitochondrial function um, in individuals with autism. Um, and slide 52 uh, we can uh, see some of the ways that uh, that butyrate works and it differs from propionic acid that is that propionic acid can go through the citric acid cycle in short circle the citric acid cycle whereas butyrate actually is a direct fuel to the citric acid cycle coming um, from the top Um, so slide 53 uh, we found that um, in control cell lines that uh, that butyrate um, seemed to, um, uh, seemed to um, actually um, uh, uh, be a bit of a strain on mitochondrial function at very high levels, but that wasn't true, so slide 54, that wasn't true of, um, uh, of the uh, cells from kiddos with autism. And in fact, we found that the, uh, the cells that were under physiological stress or had mitochondrial dysfunction um, actually, were able to use butyrate to increase uh, reserve capacity um, uh, very uh, significantly. Um, and then slide 55, uh, we found that uh, that uh, that actually um, uh, that when you put uh, the cells under stress, under physiological stress, that butyrate actually was able to help preserve reserve capacity um, in these cells. So. Um, unlike propionic acid, where it made it worse, it actually helped. And some of the mechanisms we think that worked through is uh, slide fifty six is is through uh, modulating some of these important genes that uh, that um, really uh, promote um, increasing the quality of mitochondria. And these are some of the genes i I had uh, mentioned that, in the, in the cells we find that are abnormal, that have abnormal mitochondrial function in autism um, aren't really working. So uh, MFN2 uh, and uh, DRP1, FIS1 and such, um, butyrate actually um, was able to modulate these, uh, these important genes to help um, restore mitochondrial function. Um, and we see this also on slide um, uh, 572. So this is an example of an external, um, um, a external environmental um, exposure, I think, that, uh, from our gut that can improve mitochondrial function and modulate mitochondrial function. So those are in the cell lines. What about uh, kiddos? So uh, in uh, slide 58, we actually looked at the mitochondrial function in the mucosa of the, uh, of the colon of kiddos with autism. Um, and um, uh, we'll, uh, so slide 59, uh, we know that uh, that seems like in the uh, colon of kids with autism uh, that, uh, that there, there is level of, um, uh, of certain types of increased level of, of certain types of dysbiotic um, uh, microbiome. There's inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, and mitochondrial dysfunction uh, possibly. Uh, so uh, we actually measured mitochondrial function, slide 60, and we actually found that uh, similar to the uh, the cell lines with uh, with um, with elevated mitochondrial function, that uh, that in general, when we looked at uh, the colon um, of kids with autism versus those with uh, those of typically developing children, or those that had Crohn's disease that the mitochondria did have this distinct pattern of being um, overactive Um, uh, so uh, slide 61 again is showing um, um, maybe how this works what are these uh what are these short chain fatty acids both butyrate and propionate contribute Um, and uh, so slide 62 this is a our model of what we think is, is going on, that it may be that with an overproduction of butyrate um, from the, um, uh, from, uh, the dysbiotic um, uh, uh, microbiome in the colon of individuals with autism, it may be programming the, uh, the mitochondria to be somewhat overactive. And again, when they're overactive, they, they can be somewhat uh, sensitive Uh, to uh, high levels of oxidative stress. So if there's any inflammation, they may actually be more sensitive to that. So moving on from autism, we can talk about examples of different genetic uh, disorders where we see mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, Slide 64, one of the uh, the important uh, disorders that we see that's very prevalent is Down syndrome. Uh, Slide 65, um, this is a very uh, important um, um, paper um, is actually a book chapter that talked about the evidence for oxidative stress and mitochondrial dysfunction and Down syndrome. And slide 66, um, we can see that there are, there are many papers that show that, uh, that there's actually elevated oxidative stress in kiddos with Down syndrome, slide 67, we can see that there's um, there's actually many studies that show that there's abnormalities um, in mitochondrial function. There's examples of mitochondrial function in Down syndrome. And slide 68 um, uh, is a nice you know, a diagram uh, that shows that there's evidence for not only Down syndrome, uh, but Rett syndrome which is another genetic disorder, an autism spectrum disorder, um, where there's an effect on certain types of enzymes in the electron transport chain. Uh, that, um, that are dysfunctional in these diseases. And slide 69, which is a nice uh, paper, um, is when they looked at the expression of genes and compared them between these developmental disorders, autism, Rett syndrome, and Down syndrome, they found that there was, very, there was commonalities in the way that genes were dysregulated. And they all converged on these pathways of abnormal oxidative stress, immune system dysfunction, and mitochondrial uh, dysfunction. Uh, slide 70, we have some data from other genetic disorders such as Philip McDermott syndrome, uh, that the mitochondria may not be working, and slide 71. Um, what, we, uh, what we pointed out in this paper is that although uh, the uh, uh, many people uh, contribute uh, um, concentrate on uh, shank mutations. Um, as causing abnormalities in feline mcdermid syndrome. In the same area of the genome that is disturbed, there's actually six mitochondrial genes. Um, and what you would predict um, if uh, you look at these genes is that there would be disturbance in complex one and complex four in the mitochondria and not complex two or three And slide 72. Uh, we actually see in this study, that's exactly what we found, is that individuals with feline McDermott syndrome had um, a disturbance in either Complex 1 or Complex uh, 4 activity, but not Complex 2 or 3, um, primarily. And um, slide 73, uh, we um, actually showed that, uh, depending on whether Complex 1 was underactive, which is um, consistent with more classic mitochondrial disease, or whether it was overactive, it would depend on your symptoms and that those, those with more overactive um, complex one had more symptoms that were consistent with, uh, with autism, whereas those with underactive complex one had symptoms that were more consistent with classic mitochondrial disease. Slide 74, we've shown other disorders such as WDR 45, which is a genetic disorder of iron metabolism uh, that there might be mitochondrial dysfunction, and that's on slide 75, um, where we've published that. Um, so slide 76, potential treatments. I'll just talk about quickly because I'm running out of time. Um, uh, slide 77 is really a list of the uh, the different um, uh, types of uh, um, supplements that we give to treat mitochondrial dysfunction in slide 78 uh, what we did in this study is actually we did an observational study of kids with autism to see if we can uh, prove that uh, that uh, some of these supplements were actually making a difference on mitochondrial um, uh, function by looking at kids that were on and off supplements or for children that had uh, where we measured them both on and off different supplements. And so what we showed is that um, complex one, its absolute activity, was uh, affected by fatty acids and folate supplementation. Uh, That citrate synthase, which is slide 79, was affected by uh, fatty acids, folate, and antioxidants. Um, And slide 80, which was very interesting, is we looked at not only the absolute level, of how the enzymes in the mitochondria are working, but how they were um, working together. And we actually found that uh, in slide 80, that that depending on whether somebody was on folate or not, um, um, told you about how complex four and complex one were working together. Uh, That is, they were more tightly uh, regulated or more tightly working together when you uh, were on folate. Um, and uh, slide 81. Um, and this is the same thing for the relationship between citrate synthase and complex one, where we found folate and B12 both changed the way that uh, these uh, uh, enzymes were working together. Uh, slide 82 is a very good study that was uh, that's being done um, by uh, the guys at St. Christopher's Hospital. Uh, it was led by Dr. Goldenthal. Um, Uh, To actually get kids with autism mitochondrial dysfunction and show that by giving them a mitochondrial um, Cocktail you can not only improve their mitochondrial function, but improve their behavior Um, slide 83 uh, There's a a nice study by Jim Adams He has a a few of these studies where he showed that a supplement that improves mitochondrial function uh, targets we would expect Uh, target mitochondrial function can improve um, not only measures of mitochondrial function, that's slide 84, but slide 85 actually improve behavior. Uh, Slide 86, there's been studies in Down syndrome too, uh, albeit very few, uh, that have shown uh, that certain types of um, uh, supplements that were to be expected positively uh, modulate uh, mitochondrial function actually um, did do that in uh, children with Down syndrome and there's a study on EGCG and fish oils uh, slide 87 is a, is a diagram of some of the pathways that uh, EGCG might be actually uh, targeting the mitochondria um, and slide 88 are some of the other studies on uh, down syndrome that um, have used various uh, supplements which we know can positively influence the mitochondria that have um, showed um, some um, positive uh, results. So slide 89 I'll just point to one of the papers that we've published where we talk about how different types of treatments can positively um, influence uh, metabolic systems at least in individuals with autism um, and uh, and uh, slide 90 is another paper where we talk about some of these same abnormalities in autism and their treatment. So um, slide 90 is the end, and I thank you for your attention.
0: Thank you, Dr. Fry. That was a lot of great information, and I think the the most exciting part of that is to know as more and more diagnoses are connected to mitochondrial disease that's more time and effort and resources that are being put into studying and understanding mitochondrial disease which is a really good thing for this community. So um, we are already at one o'clock but I have a few questions that came in so we'll go through these pretty quickly um, and see if we can get some of these answered Um, and if not we can send some of the remaining questions over to Dr. Fry and we can post those Um, on the website as well. So the first question is, does elevation in the ETC complexes, particularly complex one, suggest anything, especially when other markers indicate mital dysfunction, such as low carnitine, elevated AST, and multiple organ involvement?
1: Uh, So, I'm sorry, so the question is, does it point to anything in particular?
0: Yes. Does it suggest anything, um, especially when other markers? Does it does it yeah. indicate yeah. primary mitochondrial dysfunction or?
1: So, so, so yeah. Thank thank you for the question. Um, it's um, so it's. Uh, I don't think we have enough to know whether it. it um so, so, you know, primary mitochondrial dysfunction again, is uh, many times thought in the very classic sense uh, um, to be a decrease in and in, mitoc- uh, in, in enzyme um, function so um, so it it's probably unlikely that it's going to fall into that very narrow bucket. but um, uh, the other side of it, which I think uh, uh, the question is also, Asking, is it a primary mitochondrial? Could it be a primary mitochondrial disorder? That is, could it be due to the mitochondria itself, or could it be due to something else? And and the um, the the answer is, um, either one of those may be the case. And these are one of the cases where we say that you really have to take a very careful look. At what's going on. It's going to depend on the tissues, uh, you know, what tissue you looked at. Sometimes we see elevations in some tissues and depression in, in other tissues. We've seen this actually um, in uh, fibroblasts of um, the kiddos um, that uh, that had depression in uh, complex one and um, elevations in uh, 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 short and short uh, long chain fatty acids. That is that we saw depression in the muscle and we saw Actually, increase um, um, in the in the uh, in the fibroblasts when we looked at them, and there's many reasons for that, including compensatory activity. Um, so, uh, so you have to look at many tissues. We do have uh, some unpublished cases where um, where we think that um, uh, certain um, um, mutations in certain genes may, uh, in fact, cause elevations rather than Depressions in certain complexes. So it could be primarily uh, genetic also. It also may very well be uh, secondary to some other um, genetic disease or non-genetic disease, and and that is um, uh, either environmental exposure or some type of epigenetic change. So uh, unfortunately, it it doesn't tell you um, specifically the cause, but it does, I believe, with all of what you're saying, is uh, it does say that the mitochondria is not working and and really aggressive treatment needs to be be done to at least uh, treat the abnormalities that you know about and to continue to look for other abnormalities that may be uh, the primary cause.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, So the next question is, and I just want to preface this by saying, you know, before anybody makes a decision to undergo any kind of treatments or supplements, they need to consult first with their physician um, because every individual situation is unique. But one of the questions is you spoke about um, the healthy gut. What are some ways that patients can manage um, uh, their gut health and relieving themselves of the unhealthy bacteria that may exist in their systems?
1: So... Um... So, yeah, the gut microbiome is something that we're really um, uh, really just beginning to understand more. and really, uh, how to treat it is something that's really, well, how to measure it, first of all, how to measure it in a, a, a very exact you know particular valid way is something that's still undergoing research. Uh, I know there, there's tests out there, but really, uh, you know, we're still learning um, um, how to do this. Um, in in a way that we can interpret the data that we get, um, and um, and then how to treat you know um, uh, the gut to keep it healthy um, is a, a completely different area um, of uh, science that uh, that we still you know um, don't know completely. I know there's a lot of products, a lot of uh, probiotics, and you know some of them you know um, uh, are more reputable than others. Um, um, and uh, the idea of just using something like a probiotic to help uh, the gut um, may 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 not you know work um, completely um, uh, or that simply because the gut microbiome is something that's extremely um, uh, complex. So um, uh, so. Uh, we know that it has this profound effect, but we 're really just starting to learn on really how to correct that and how that will how we can correct it
0: to improve health. Yeah, so we'll that, thank you for I appreciate that so we'll continue to look for you know, some more of those studies as they come out and share those with the community as we learn more about um, the gut health and the bacteria. Um, so let's take one last question. Um, can you explain? What is upstream of mito dysfunction or disease, and is there a correlation um, for the diagnosis and in, in kids in mito kids with ASD?
1: I'm sorry. So, can I? Can I
0: so, I think it's a two-part upstream? question. Up okay. the what is upstream of mito dysfunction?
1: Mm-hmm. So, I, I guess the, what do you in mean? The, and what is, the, what is
0: the correlation of? of that and significant diagnosis and increase of mito issues in kids with ASD.
1: Yeah, so um, what's upstream? Well, there's, there's many different things uh, that are upstream, you know, uh, and that's one of the, the things that's uh, very intriguing because, uh, you know, three of the major systems, um, as I had mentioned in the beginning that, uh, that require energy or GI, Nervous system and immune system, and those are three systems that we see that tend to be dysfunctional in uh, children uh, with autism. That there's a very high rate of GI symptoms. There's um, a high rate of immune dysfunction, and of course uh, of nervous system um, abnormalities. Uh, so I think the mito um, is involved in many different aspects, um, and possibly independently involved in many different aspects of the of how many parts of the body um, actually uh, work, Of course, the GI system, um, the, the it's probably very important for absorption, digestion, and motility. Um, and uh, in the immune system, it's probably very important for regulating the immune system and keeping it in check to um, to work correctly. Uh, in the nervous system, um, It has many different roles. Uh, Particularly, we think that it may be involved in the the, uh, balance of excitatory to inhibitory balance in the cortex because the mitochondria is very active and differentially active in the the inhibitory um, uh, arm of the nervous system. Um, It's also very important in synaptic plasticity and having the brain change during learning. Um, You know, and and so mitochondria is very involved there. So the brain may not develop in the way that it really should because of that. So there's many upstream um, uh, consequences of mitochondrial dysfunction. You know, how it's correlated with with autism is uh, is still something that we're still trying to understand. There's a a wide prevalence, um, anywhere from 5% to 80%. Of um, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction um, in in autism, and there's probably different um, causes too um, in autism. Autism is something that is uh, is uh, very heterogeneous, so we may not have the same causes, but in some ways you know um, we uh, think that it may be one of the final common pathways where a lot of other different um, um, etiologies, that is causes of autism, maybe work to cause dysfunction of the brain and other parts of the body.
0: Great, okay, thank you for that. So we are about 10 minutes over our time limit, so we are going to wrap up. Um, you know, thank you, Dr. Fry, so much for sharing this great insight with us. This is, this is all great information that, um, you know, it, it will hopefully be beneficial to, to our families on their journeys with Mito. Um, So, everyone, thank you for joining us today. I want to remind you, um, you know, don't forget MitoAction is here with our Mito411 support line. If you have questions, need someone to talk to, or looking for resources, feel free to reach out to us at 888-MITO-411, and we are here to walk hand-in-hand with you on this journey, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us. As a reminder, today's call will be available on the MitoAction website within 24 hours of today's call. So I encourage you to go back and listen and share, um, and our full library of recordings is also there as well. So we hope that today's call provided valuable information. I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Fry, for your time and your unwavering commitment to the Mito community. I wish everyone a great day and have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.